Hello there, this is Future Forecast and I'm your host, Daniel Trainer. Today we're going to talk about some of the new technology happening right now in consumer electronics, transportation, energy and possible future innovations. Broadcasting every weekday on KUIK 1360 AM as well as weekly on X-Ray 91.1 FM. If you want to listen to episodes in your own time, be sure to check out the playback on SoundCloud by searching Future Forecast with Daniel Trainer. But without further ado, let's buckle up and find out what's this week's Future Forecast. With technology, there's always something interesting coming out. You know, at CES, we had robots and they were helping make a meal. They have these robot arms coming down from a kitchen countertop. Uh, Just interesting stuff like that. But with technology, we also sometimes get things that are not so great, like AI replacing jobs or human interaction altogether. So we kind of need to be very careful when it comes to robots and how we integrate with them for modern society. And just recently, we kind of can see that happening right now, where robots are getting a little too far uh, when it comes to integrating, and it's starting to affect the fabric of our society. So Arnold Schwarzenegger, who's you know he's famous for playing the Terminator, which is kind of ironic because that was the humanoid robot. He is suing a Russian robot company called Promobot for 10 million over using his likeness in one of their products. So you can kind of see why I said this is ironic. Now the robot is called Android Robot C and it's a humanoid robot. It can be customized to look like any human on earth and that's according to the company. But Arnold claims that the lawsuit, you know, he never gave the company permission to use his likeness and he has unwillingly become now the face of the product. Now, in addition to the $10 million, which is the sum the actor would have been paid for using his likeness, the lawsuit's also going to seek any profits made from the robot, punitive damages, as well as injunction prohibiting Promobot from using his likeness. And the reason this is so important is because we've seen this before. We saw this with Whitney Houston when they brought her back to life with the kind of hologram thing. And we saw this also in movies. You see Princess Leia and, you know, Carrie Fisher in Star Wars, and they made the CGI, like, and that's how it begins. You have this normal, okay, that's fine. You know, the person's obviously, there's permission to use them in the film, and obviously they've, they've passed away and they were still in the middle of production or something that that's you can see how that's fine but then you have this edge an edge closer to what's not okay and that's what we're seeing with Arnold now put yourself in Arnold's shoes you wake up in the morning and then you're like what's this there's a clone of me and you have no idea that this has happened but somebody's just went out copied you and made you into a robot and imagine these types of the pitch from this company was you know you could put this in your cafe and it would bring in tourists or people around in the area and then that kind of raises the question well are you devaluing the human the original human that played the character because now you can just get this robot and then that raises the question for music labels you know production companies well you know with robotics getting better and better and better is there any need for the human actor or should we just use these humanoid robots 
So that's why I think uh, Arnold, uh, this obviously a lot of people would say, well, why didn't he just let it pass? But this is a greater issue. Now, at the New York Toy Fair, which was kind of last month, the media reported that although the robot wasn't an exact replica of him, uh, it could, quote, definitely pass for Arnold. And that's probably because this system, it can copy human facial expressions, so it can move its eyes, eyebrows, lips, and other muscles around the face. Also, can keep a conversation going and answer questions. Now, Promobot's Robo-C costs between $20,000 and $50,000, but regardless, this is not about the robot, it's about humans. And what Arnold is doing here could pave the future forward to stop AI replacing celebrities and humans for movies or anything else in the future to just save money. So, I guess it's like his famous phrase, hasta la vista, robot. But, you know, talking about something on a little bit of a different note, people have been listening to radio for over 100 years up to today, and that will continue going into the 2020s. You know, some mediums they just aren't going anywhere. Even when we try switch away, they always pull us back. Now, nostalgia can be the start of a comeback. And sometimes people need to experience the cutting-edge technology to appreciate and stick with old technology. It's a bit like electric cars. People, they go into an electric car, and like a Tesla, they get the whole autopilot experience, and then they go into an older car, which is totally mechanical, and then they appreciate it more. But a bit like compact discs replacing vinyl, uh, records then started to bounce back, and they have been very recently coming back in a big way for modern music listening. Now, we know that the quality is a lot higher, but what actually happened to cassette players? Now, we know digital music players and smartphones, you know, like iPods and all of that, they caused a whole big extinction event for the portable analog audio. But just like vinyl records, is it time that cassette tapes, they come back? Are they making their return? Well, Molan thinks so, and they're launching something called the Mystic. Now, cassette sales have been growing in recent years, but their share of the overall music consumption, like vinyl and all of that, is still pretty small. But the experience, if you think back, the experience of exchanging physical mixtapes, that's what's going to bring it back. Uh, Crossley and Tascam have already been prepping for the return of the tape. And then you have on Kickstarter a couple of portable cassette players go up and like there was one, you know, the wireless chops. Now that's reportedly available for general sale right now. But what about this Mystic, uh, this little cassette player? Well, the device has been built around a new electronic board, and that's designed by former Thompson and RCA audio engineers. So people that worked on the original cassette players back in the day, they re-came up with this new electronic board, which is kind of cool. Now, it features a rechargeable battery instead of the AA disposable ones found in all those old players and it's aimed for stereo playback frequency response of 100 hertz to 10 kilohertz so very very good and it's got a 3.5 millimeter headphone jack for a very nice analog listening experience but it also has bluetooth 5.0 for streaming tunes wirelessly to your headphones or speakers so it can also record too which is what a lot of old cassette players could do too through the built-in mic or by plugging in a 3.5mm recording jack. And that means people can once again make and share their own mixtapes. 
So it's going to ship with a blank Fox C60 tape and that's going to try and get you started with the whole cassette experience. Now the Mystic cassette player has been penciled in for production at an estimated retail price of only $110. So it's really not that bad, especially when you compare it to like the new Sony Walkman, which is quite expensive. Now, just like vinyl, cassette is coming back. So don't be surprised if you go in mid 2020s, you go in and you see these cassette tape players go back on sale next to VR and AI tech at your local Best Buy. Enjoying the show? Well, just remember you can listen to them on SoundCloud anytime you want. Just search for Future Forecast with Daniel Trainer and have a listen. It's that easy. This show's broadcast weekly on X-Ray 91.1 FM and every day of the working week on KUIK 1360 AM. So be sure to tune in and join live. transportation, GM had their EV day, and there was some quite interesting and important information released. We now know that their new platform is going to have an estimated range of up to 400 miles or more on a full charge. Most GM EVs will have a 400 volt battery pack and 200 kilowatt fast charging capability, which is really good. That's on par nearly with Tesla. Now, vehicles built on GM's truck platform will have an 800 volt battery pack and a 350 kilowatt fast charging capability. And that's really on a competitive level now with Rivian and Tesla. The 0 to 60 is going to kind of be around three seconds. So again, that's almost mid 2000s hypercar speeds. And it's going to be a platform that's designed for level two and DC fast charging, which is probably the most common plugs that you find around the US and over in Canada. Now, the motors are designed in-house, and that's going to be very, very important because it's going to support front-wheel drive, rear-wheel drive, and all-wheel drive, and performance all-wheel drive applications. And a lot of people think, you know, well, Tesla, Tesla's got the same battery or the motor, and they've been making it easy, no problem. Why is this such a big thing for GM? Because this is built in-house. This isn't going to be like a Tesla where they have to, you know, use a Model 3 motor in the front and maybe Model S motors in the back or something for a performance model. They're literally going to have one motor that fits all, which would kind of raise the interesting question. You think of muscle cars back in the old, old days, people would try and maybe put a supercharger on it, squeeze a bit more power. You're going to effectively have like a supercharged V8 in almost every car. It's just a software unlock away. A little bit after announcing those specs, GM then teased a few future EV silhouette lines. So they didn't show the full car, but they showed the side of it. And it was pretty obvious to see what they were gonna be. Uh, there was 10 of them, but the ones that were most obvious was first gonna be a Chevrolet or GMC EV pickup. Not, this is not to be confused with the Hummer EV pickup. This is a separate EV and it looked very sleek, very nice, smooth, well-designed, but definitely nothing as modern as a Cybertruck or a Rivian. Now, during the Q&A, President Mark Roos said that the all-electric Chevy pickup was coming, 
but he wouldn't share the date of exactly when. But obviously it's going to be after the Hummer EV, which is 2021, and probably before the 2025 deadline that GM's now set themselves. There was also a Chevy Camaro EV. Now this, a lot of people said, oh yeah, there you go, this is a two-door Chevy Camaro. I don't think so. When you look at this, this doesn't look like a coupe. This looks like an SUV. It looks like it's raised, uh, it's long wheelbase, and maybe GM is trying to pull a Ford Mach-E. They're trying to make an EV Camaro SUV. Because remember, GM plans to discontinue the current gas-powered Camaro in 2023, so maybe this is gonna get released around that time, so around 2023. And lastly, they obviously did a big promotion for Cadillac because that's gonna be their premier EV sedan and kind of SUV brand. So that's gonna go as a competitor to other premium EV sedan makers, so like BMW. BMW just announced their i4 uh, sedan, so maybe that's gonna be a competitor to that. And they also have a target of selling 1 million electric cars globally by 2025. Remember, that does include China, and they're putting a lot of effort into China, as we know, where they're not really helping the US with the Chevy Menlo. But, you know, that's a good goal, I think. And I think it could have been done a lot better, because GM are focusing specifically on large EV vehicles. The Bolt is going to be their only small platform, so far from what we can see. And also, where are the two-door sport EVs? Seriously, GM, they've got Corvette under their umbrella. Why are they not using it? At least, maybe even bring back the EV1 nameplate. And that would be something really recognizable and eye-catching. And you could bring it back maybe as like a Hyper Ranger EV. It's more not, it's like a loss leader. You want to tie people to the brand, they see it and they're like, oh wow, that's GM. Something like that, it grabs attention. Now, talking about grabbing attention, the new Fiat 500e. It did come out, it's finally here. Now, this is actually the second generation, as we know, to the original 500e that was launched on the West Coast. Now, this is a redesign not only to the 500e, but to the 500. So the original 500 back in the 50s and 60s, that got only reinvented back in 2007. Up to that point, it was the same design. And that's the car that we know about today when you see the 500s on the road. But this new 500 that's going to be going 2020 and beyond, this is quite a lot larger than even the 2007 redesign. Because this is going to be longer and wider, and it's also going to have a front and rear axle that are set further apart. So that means more space for you and the passenger inside. However, the luggage room is still going to be pretty bad. What's not so bad is actually the specs. Now, it's going to be powered by 117 horsepower electric motor, and it's going to get 198 miles of range. So all those rumors that we were talking about before, I knew I was right when I said this is going to be close to 200 miles range. And there you go. Now, when you want to charge it from like, you know, up to 80%, it's going to be 35 minutes with a rapid charger, which is again, very similar to Tesla. And you might hear Tesla owners, they say, oh, my car can charge in 15 minutes. And that's true. If you're on a road trip, the car will maybe take only 15 minutes, but it's not going to charge the full battery. It's only going to charge what it needs to get 
to the next supercharger. Now, if you want, you can actually choose driving modes on the 500. There's normal, which is for everyday use, Sharpa, which limits the top speed and dulls the accelerator to try and give you the maximum range. And then you've got range mode, and that maximizes regenerative braking, allowing for one pedal driving, which is again, something that you could get on a Tesla for a very long time. There's also an adaptive cruise control, lane keeping assistance, and blind spot monitoring for a driver attention monitor and 360 degree camera. So very, very good uh, for the 500 because it's got pretty bad blind spots. They also were talking about level two autonomy. So the car will be able to drive itself specifically in a city, which is usually the hardest spot. Going on the highway, autopilot, that's kind of fine, but full self-driving kind of in the city, nearly full self-driving, that's not bad for the city. Now the pricing for the new 500 starts at $42,500 when you convert it to US. And at that price, the new 500 uh, is more expensive than a Model 3. That was a mistake. They shouldn't have made it that much. Um, now, keep in mind, the 500e on the West Coast was, I think it was around 35,000, which is like the Model 3. But when they came off lease, uh, they usually sold for about $5,000. Uh, and you can pick one up today. If you want 500e, you can go out and get one three-year-old model, $5,000. But the annoying thing is that Fiat are still not 100% if the Fiat 500, the new one, the new electric, is even gonna come to the US. And that's kind of sad because this definitely has pretty good specs in it. And this is kind of a competitor to the Chevy Bolt and the Tesla Model 3. So if they brought it over, it might actually be a much bigger hit than the original 500e, which was more of a compliance car. The other cool thing is, uh, unlike most EVs that create this white noise to alert pedestrians walking by an electric car, because it doesn't make any noise. An electric car, when it's stopped, you cannot hear anything. Maybe the air conditioner, but that's about it. Now, Fiat, they did something a little different. Instead of just playing white noise, the car makes, or plays, Italian music as it drives by, and apparently that can be customized, so you could play different music, or maybe the Jetsons, like a space age sound going by, so it's kind of cool, and it's a quirk that even Tesla doesn't have in any of their vehicles today. Enjoying the show? Well, just remember you can listen to them on SoundCloud anytime you want. Just search for Future Forecast with Daniel Trainer and have a listen. It's that easy. This show's broadcast weekly on X-Ray 91.1 FM and every day of the working week on KUIK 1360 AM. So be sure to tune in and join live. So in space, a few years ago, for the first time ever, astronauts ate lettuce that had been grown aboard the International Space Station. Well, great news is that space lettuce was at least as nutritious as similar plants grown here on Earth. But what actually happened on the ISS? Well, they had red romaine lettuce plants and they were grown for 33 to 56 day periods between 2014 and 2016 in NASA's Vegetable Production Systems Zero-G Greenhouse Chamber. And inside that little chamber, it had LED grow lights and an automated watering system. 
Now, there were three astronauts and they consumed the leaves each, and the rest of the crop was kind of frozen up for subsequent transport back to Earth. It was then chemically and biologically analyzed by scientists at the Kennedy Space Center, who compared it to romaine that had been grown in the center's laboratories over the same periods. Now, keep in mind that the Earth lettuce was raised under the same conditions, matching the veggie chamber up in the ISS, and that includes the temperature, carbon dioxide levels, and humidity. Now, overall, the Earth and ISS plants were found to be quite similar in composition. In some cases, however, the space lettuce was actually richer in elements like potassium, sodium, phosphorus, sulfur, and zinc, and it also contained higher levels of phenolics, which are molecules that have been shown to possess antiviral, anti-cancer, and anti-inflammatory qualities. Now, interestingly, it had been assumed that the ISS lettuce would contain fewer types of organisms, and importantly, no harmful bacteria, so you know, like E. coli or salmonella. They weren't found in any of the plants. So, based on that and those findings, the space lettuce has been declared good to eat. Now, Dr. Gyoa Massa at the Kennedy Space Center said, the International Space Station is serving as a testbed for future long-duration missions. Because remember, all of this that we're learning about the space lettuce, we're gonna have to grow this when we do go to Mars, which is happening pretty soon. So these types of crops, she was saying, they're helpful in finding out the suite of candidates that can be effectively grown in microgravity. Future tests will study other types of leaf crops as well as small fruits like pepper and tomatoes to help provide supplemental fresh produce for the astronaut diet. Very interesting. And going along the lines of interesting International Space Station stuff, for the final time, SpaceX's Dragon cargo capsule was captured by the ISS, you know, the Canada arm, delivering more than 4,300 pounds of food, experiments, and spare parts. Now, the future Dragon resupply missions are going to be done using the new spacecraft design, and that's going to automatically dock with the space station. But this unpiloted cargo freighter completed a two-day trip in orbit just to catch up with the ISS and obviously successfully did the supply and it marked the 20th time that the SpaceX Dragon cargo capsule has arrived at the space station since May 2012, which is a really good proof record, especially for working with NASA. They like to see a lot of reliability, a lot of missions. So the mission was known as CRS-20 or SpaceX-20, and it was the final flight for the first generation Dragon spacecraft, which the company is going to be retiring, as we talked about, for the new Dragon capsule, which is designed to dock directly to the space station without needing to be captured by the Canada arm. Now, astronaut Jessica Meyer said that quote, the SpaceX-20, or CRS-20 mission, is a milestone for several reasons. It is, of course, the 20th SpaceX cargo mission, but it's also the last SpaceX cargo vehicle captured by the Canada arm as future vehicles will dock automatically. And you know, I thought it'd be kind of interesting to go through what was actually packed inside the cargo load, because it's cool just saying, you know, there was supplies, and but what was really in there? Well, they had science investigations, and that was 2,116 pounds. They had unpressurized cargo, which is the Bartomeu, 1,032 pounds. They had crew supplies, which was only 602 pounds. Vehicle hardware, 483 pounds. Spacewalk equipment, 
which is 123 pounds, and computer resources, which was two pounds, probably like a USB or something. Now, after about a month in orbit, astronauts will load the research specimens and other cargo that's all tagged for a return back to Earth into the Dragon spacecraft, which is scheduled to depart from the ISS and splash down in the Pacific Ocean southwest of Los Angeles on April 6th. Now, the return of the Dragon capsule next month will mark the transition to SpaceX's next CRS contract with NASA. And initially, SpaceX and NASA, they're not going to be reusing Dragon 2 capsules, especially for the crew missions. Uh, the cargo variant will qualify to fly to the space station and back to Earth up to five times. After that, that's it. Then it has to get scrapped or recycled. So very interesting. It'll be cool to see, especially the CRS-21 mission, which is going to be late this year. Now over at the competitor, Blue Origin. Now they've showed their new Glenn nose cone, and they can say that you can fit nearly 50% more payload than the next competitor, which obviously could be SpaceX or ULA. Now what their idea is, is to build one rocket plus a payload fairing, kind of in a combination to meet the needs of all customers, commercial, civil, national security, all of it. The fairing itself is 22 foot in diameter. And remember, the payload fairing, that's what's going to shelter the payload during the process of launch. It needs to withstand all the vibrations and all the other stresses. Once it's in orbit, the fairing just falls away in two pieces, and then the payload is released. And this is an important thing, because it doesn't matter how powerful a rocket is. Uh, if you can't fit the bulk of the payload in, that kind of makes it useless. And according to Blue Origin, New Glenn will feature a reusable first stage that apparently will last up to 25 missions. They also say that the rocket's going to launch 95% of the time for weather conditions, implying that launch schedules will be pretty reliable. The New Glenn will reach a towering height of 313 feet, which should dwarf something like a, you know, SpaceX Falcon 9 rocket. It's almost, almost as tall as the Saturn V, but obviously it's nothing compared to the Starship. Now, it'll be capable of delivering 45 metric tons, almost a thousand pounds, into low Earth orbit. And initially, Jeff Bezos said that New Glenn would be ready to launch kind of around this year, but the company's saying that the first payload's going to be 2021, so either way, it's pretty soon. But currently, they've only got the main engines and the payload fairings, so they're still working on the rest of the vehicle, but it should be done pretty soon. Now, moving on to NASA on Boeing. It's been a pretty rocky road between the two, and there was a review team, and they studied the software glitches and other issues that cropped up during the unpiloted test flight of Boeing's Starliner crew capsule that happened last December, and they've made 60 recommendations to make sure that all the known shortcomings are addressed before the spacecraft is cleared for another flight. Now, Douglas Lavero, who's the director of spaceflight at NASA, said he classified the instance as, quote, high visibility close call, which is a formal designation that kicks off additional government reviews. Now, in the meantime, he said the agency will make sure that the review team recommendations are fully implemented. But it's not clear how long that might take. 
He said, quote, quite frankly, right now, we don't know. They have to now come back to NASA with a plan, how they're going to go ahead and address all those recommendations. We'll do our own inspection of the results of their work, and then we'll be in a position to decide whether or not we need another uncrewed test flight or not. So we're still a ways away from that. And I can't even tell you what the schedule is for making that decision, because it's very dependent upon what we see as Boeing's corrective action plan and the thoroughness by which we believe that the correction action plan has been implemented. So definitely we can kind of get a feel for this being a very rocky situation. Now Jim Chilton, who's the VP at Boeing Space and Launch, said that the company will do whatever NASA asks. The company told investors earlier that it was taking a $410 million charge against pre-tax earnings in a large part to cover its possible cost of another test flight. He said, quote, for us, it's not that complicated. Boeing stands ready to repeat an OFT if required. There's not any intent on our part to avoid it. We just want to make sure that whatever we fly next is aligned with NASA's preferences. And of course, for all of us, crew safety is number one. And as we know, both Boeing and SpaceX have been building their piloted astronaut ferry ships for NASA under the commercial contracts, and that's valued up to $6.8 billion dollars. Now, NASA, they haven't released the list of the recommendations they had for Boeing, but Lovero said, quote, I want to make sure that everybody understands that we at NASA are taking this very seriously. We're going to make sure that at the end of the day, we can fly astronauts safely on Starliner. So that's pretty much it. Safety, number one priority. Everything else can take its time. Now, talking about something a little different, we already know Mars is pretty amazing, and we just got an image posted to NASA's Space Science Photo of the Day this week that just proves that even again more. Now, it shows a hollowed out mountain, and we've talked about this before, and it's called lava tubes. And they kind of create these skylights inside. Now, this happens from ancient volcanic activity below the surface of Mars. Now, on the western slopes of a shield volcano called Palvonius Mons, the surrounding area shows some really amazing geological features. So there's like this long snaking lava tube, uh, there's fault features called grabbins, and obviously the large volcanic crater itself. But you're thinking, how do these lava tubes hollow out? And it's because sometimes lava flows, uh, they can solidify on the surface while continuing to flow below. So it creates that pipe. And once that flow drains out, it leaves behind this lava tube cave. And as time goes by, sections of the roof will collapse and it creates these skylights. And looking again at this particular skylight opening, it seems to be around 115 feet across. And that's pretty massive. Doing a digital terrain map allowed scientists to kind of calculate the volume of the material that drained through the tube. And based on the calculations, the rubble pile has to be at least 203 feet tall, which means that the pit itself had to be at least 295 deep prior to the collapse of the roof. And that's much bigger than any lava tube found here on Earth. And as NASA had mentioned, Massive lava tubes like this, they're quite exciting because they offer some protection from harsh radiation. And this means that they could be a really good site for establishing underground bases. But there's another thing. If we know that these are good places for us to be, for our own survival on Mars, what about alien life? Holes like this, they're very interesting because their interior caves are protecting kind of from the harsh surface of Mars. And that makes them great candidates for Martian life. 
Also, while the hole is pretty easy to explain, this Martian skylight does have a conical crater around it, which is not really understood yet. Now, it could mean that by fluke, there was a meteor and it landed and smashed through the roof of the tube, but we don't, we still don't really know, so we'll just have to wait and see. The most interesting part is that all of the, even the SpaceX and you've got Blue Origin, you've got all these companies looking at where the landing site's gonna be, and pretty much all of them choose near these lava tubes, which is quite interesting because a lot, even with NASA, when they were talking about, well, what would we put inside these lava tubes other than ourselves? People were saying, well, you can grow food in there, which kind of relates back to what we were talking about with the International Space Station, finding what green vegetable, what things can we grow in zero G or take with us to another planet. So these caves, it's very interesting. You know, you think about humans back in the way before we even evolved, you know, we lived in caves. We might just repeat those steps on Mars. Well, it looks like that's all we have time for today, but remember you can always listen back to these whenever you want. Just search for Future Forecasts with Daniel Trainer and SoundCloud. This show's broadcast through X-Ray 91.1 FM and KUIK 1360 AM. So be sure to tune in and listen live. Remember, all of what we just covered is happening right now. This isn't science fiction anymore, it's actually reality, especially going into the 2020s and beyond. 